the running joke in my family is I got kicked out of my first anthropology class when I was four and a half because I understood what matrilateral cross-cousin marriage looked like. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Genevieve Bell was born in Sydney in 1968, the daughter of renowned Australian feminist anthropologist Diane Bell. She grew up between Melbourne, Canberra and Aboriginal communities in Central Australia, where her mother was living and working. She went to university in the United States, graduating from Bryn Mawr College in 1990, and then Stanford University, uh, where she earned a master's degree in 1993 and a PhD in anthropology in 1998. After teaching for a time at Stanford, she was recruited to work at Intel. At Intel, Genevieve started the first user experience group and eventually was made director of the User Experience Research Group, focusing on areas like big data, smart, smart transportation, next generation image technology, and ideas about fear and wonder. More recently, Genevieve returned to Australia to take up a position at ANU as the director of the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute, which explores how to bring together data science, design thinking, and ethnography to, uh, to drive new approaches to engineering and exploring the questions of what it means to be human in a data-driven economy and world. She's been a thinker in residence in South Australia and delivered the 2017 ABC Boyer Lectures. Genevieve is the author of Divining a Digital Future, Mess and Mythology and Ubiquitous Computing with Paul Dorish. Genevieve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So you grew up as the daughter of an anthropologist, uh, living sometimes in Aboriginal communities. What was that like as a kid? Uh, best childhood ever. <laughs> I mean, it was an extraordinary childhood, right? So mum's an anthropologist and probably as importantly, she came to that when I was a kid, right? So I'm part of that generation whose parents were liberated by the reforms in higher education under Whitlam. So mum went back to university when I was four years old. So she started as an undergraduate then. And so I was a child through her undergraduate degree and then her graduate training and then all of her research, right? So I have been encountering anthropology as a sort of a, an intellectual discipline from the time I was little. So the running joke in my family is I got kicked out of my first anthropology class when I was four and a half because I understood what matrilateral cross-cousin marriage looked like. Um, so it was an extraordinary childhood, right? It was incredibly rich in all kinds of ways. Now, it wasn't without its awkwardnesses too. You know, when you're brought up that way, you sometimes forget everyone else isn't. So it took me a while to work out that everyone else's childhood wasn't just like mine. So my uh, my problem with this came when we lived in Indonesia for three years and I returned to Australia, um, having talked with adults with way too many big big words for the school playground and uh, got endlessly teased for uh, for having the wrong sort of vocabulary. How did it manifest for you? <laughs> well spotted, uh, pretty much the same way. One of my many nicknames in high school in Canberra, probably the most flattering of them was that I was called Dictionary for exactly the same <laughs> reasons, right? I was always surrounded by 
books and grown-ups and I thought those were the conversations everyone had. So, I mean, it manifested itself in a lot of ways. I got put on detention for the first time in fourth grade uh, because I got into a fight with my fourth grade teacher about who discovered Australia. Um, She declared that it had been discovered by Captain Cook, which, of course, I knew wasn't true. And so I suggested, well, you know, actually the Dutch had been here, you know, several hundred years earlier, not to mention the Chinese before that. Um, and I said, not to mention the fact that Aborigines have been here for, you know, at that point, we thought 40,000 years. And she said, well, that didn't count. And at this point, you imagine I'm a seven-year-old arguing with my teacher. And I said, well, why didn't it count? She's like, well, they didn't tell anyone. And I just got quite cross about it. I basically said something to the like, well, who on earth would they have told? <laughs> you know, that's a ridiculous bar to discovery. And I got really cross and she put me on detention. <laughs> so I think there was this bit of I'd been exposed to this world, right, and it wasn't the common conversation in Australia in the 1970s and 1980s and I didn't know how to back out from it because I was just so clear about how wrong so many things were. And so, no, I found myself on detention a lot. I got teased a lot. I certainly didn't fit in. Um, And, yeah, it was always hard to kind of square that circle. So just remind me again, what is the difference between an anthropologist and a sociologist? Oh, there's one. What, go, what, is, what, is, what is anthropology, oh, this discipline f- that caused you to, uh, to, to get put on detention? Uh, going to first principles. So it depends where you are. Um, usually the difference would be twofold. One would be the object of study and the second would be the methodology. So anthropologists would say that their object of study was culture. Sociologists would say society. And those two things, while they have a clear relationship to each other, aren't the same thing. Culture is often about meaning-making and patterns. So my favourite American anthropologist says that um, culture are the webs of significance in which we are all suspended. And, you know, sociologists would say it's about the structure of a society. So, you know, social institutions, but also how, you know, societies function, not necessarily about patterns and meaning-making. And then probably the other difference is about a methodological approach. So for the most part, and again, crass generalizations, sociologists study data, so quantitative methods, so survey instruments, data sets, um, questionnaires, they're really interested in gross scale, gross in the big sense, you know, big sense movements of patterns of society. So some sociologists would think things like the Australian Bureau of Statistics was a treasure trove of happiness. Um, Anthropologists, by contrast, tend to be smaller scale, it tends to be more qualitative, so more... um, people-focused methodology that's much more small-scale. So many anthropologists would say one of their principal methods is something we call participant observation. So the notion that you have to, in order to make sense of a place, be in that place and not just looking at it, but actively being with people as they do things. So different American anthropologists sometimes says that the way to think about anthropology is it's the practice of deep hanging out. You have to kind of go and spend time with people in the places they make meaning in their lives and understand it through their view. So it's not an externally imposed viewpoint. It's one that sort of bubbles up internally. But in lots of places, that's a blurry line. So in terms of deeply understanding places, uh, uh, how long did your mother live in these communities? So we were in and out of central Australia through the back end of the 70s and into the early 80s, and then my mum was at the Sacred Sites Authority for a bit. So... Pivotal years for me were in Central Australia, so at a place then called Warrabri, now called Alikarang, so a Walpuri, Kaida, Chalyara and Warrabungu settlement about 350 kilometres north of Alice on the eastern side of the Stewart Highway. But, you know, 
I was lucky enough to go to places like you and Tamu and Papania and Utopia and Wallara and all those other kind of settlements and then outstations too and then a bunch of time further up north. So, I mean, it was a, yeah, it was an interesting period of my life. We were in a settlement that had about a 1,000 people, give or take, uh, had a school at that point. Um, I was in a bilingual classroom, so there was a teaching aide who spoke Walpri. Uh, you know, we had Walpri lessons every day. There were, you know, a bunch of other sort of things going on because it was that kind of kind of town. And, you know, we spent a lot of time out with people on their country. So, I mean, I was incredibly privileged to be with Aboriginal people who took my mother and my brother and I out onto their country and told us the stories of the place. And you told a story in uh, accepting your Anita Borg Women of Vision and Leadership Award uh, about your mother's essential egalitarianism, about how uh, when she encountered a, a, th- a three-year-old child in a dirt track, oh, she... a little bit older than that, yes. Yeah, so she treated her as an equal. Yeah, so one of uh, the interesting things for me about living in that community and living in Aboriginal, on Aboriginal country was that there are very different notions about personhood than we would have... We certainly had, you know, in working-class Melbourne I grew up in. And so that story is a story about a little, she's a little bit older than that. She'd be about my age at that time. She was sort of seven years old. Okay. And Mama asked her who her family was because she was, you know, standing there by herself. Like, you know, should she be somewhere else, I think, was Mum's intended question. And the question in the pidgin English that was spoken in that community was to ask the question, who been boss for you? As in, basically, you know, who are your parents? And she turned that question around and looked at my mother and said, I've been boss for myself. And I remember hearing that as a little girl and thinking, whatever that is, I want that. Like the notion that I don't (laughs) have to be, that I could be boss for myself was this incredibly powerful thought, right? Now, of course, I came to learn in the many years since then that being boss for yourself didn't mean you were without responsibilities and it didn't mean that you were somehow allowed to act without reference to the rules. But the notion that if you knew the rules and you acted properly meant that you got independence was an intoxicating thing as a little girl. And I remember just thinking, yeah, that, boss for myself, okay. <laughs> Do you feel you've uh, lived up to that? Um, listen, I think the thing that is really clear to me now is that that was a oh, that was a giddy goal, the notion of being boss for yourself. I think what I've worked out subsequent to that is that that actually also has an incredible amount of responsibilities that adhere to it. So... Yeah, I may have been boss for myself, but I've been responsible for a lot of other people along the way and responsible to a lot of ideas about what I thought the world should be. So it didn't mean I was utterly unencumbered, no. You went on to study at a place where being boss for yourself is uh, almost a national mantra in the the United States. So what took you there? Oh, so listen, going to America was an odd thing at the time I did it. I mean, more common these days to go for postgrad, but I went as an undergraduate and when I Mm. went God, when was that, 86, 87, there was almost no one I know from Canberra, which is where I'd finished high school, who was pursuing the notion of going for an undergraduate degree. It was partly because I turned up at the University of Sydney for an orientation day, and I thought I'd do history and law, because back when I was 16 years old, I thought I wanted to be a politician. I thought that was how you change the world. And I was very determined. I had a big career path mapped out ahead of me. I had very clear plans and steps. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And going to Sydney and doing an arts law degree was the first step in doing all of that. Well, actually, the second step. Um, And I rocked up to Sydney Uni and one of the people in the history department poked his head out, looked at me and went, oh, you die's daughter, expecting great things from you. And I thought, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I might want a bit more of an independent me than that. And 
I was lucky enough to get to spend some time in the States at that point, and I saw these liberal arts colleges on the east coast of America. And liberal arts was an unknown thing in Australia at that mm. point. But the notion that you could have a four-year undergraduate degree program where you did a little bit of everything. So you did a little bit, and when I say a little bit, you did it to a level of scary excellence, but you did enough English literature to be able to talk about those things. You did enough in the humanities, enough in the social sciences, in the sciences, and the expectation was you would have a grounding in all of those things. So, you know, you should have two years of a foreign language and two years of maths and science and two years of social sciences and two years of humanities. And the idea for the American education system is that you're making up for a lot of deficits in high school and trying to create these well-rounded human beings who then go on to specialise it in postgraduate education. And I just thought that was an extraordinary invitation to a very different educational experience. And I was lucky enough to get into a couple of those liberal arts colleges and lucky enough still to get a scholarship on top of it because we couldn't possibly have afforded it otherwise. And now I just went... Like, I look back at it now and I don't really understand myself at 19 years old. I don't quite know how I was determined enough to just leave. I mean, looking back on it, it seems extraordinary to me. Do you think you were able to stretch your wings uh, there in a way that you wouldn't have been at Sydney University? Uh, just remake yourself, decide who you wanted to be when you, when you arrived? And... Well, one of the things that was very different about that wave of universities in that moment in time was the unlike Australia, which I think was still very much in the throes of the tall poppy syndrome. So don't stick out too much. Don't be too different. Don't um, don't be too smart. Bryn Mawr in particular, but all those liberal arts colleges, they wanted you to be smart. It was a place where you were absolutely celebrated for what was in your head. And the more of it that you showed, the more willing you were to push and be different and be excellent the better it was. So that was a total revelation to me and it was a, I don't know. Yeah, did I spread my wings? No, but I found myself in a way I'm not sure I could have here. And it was okay to be smart and really, really driven and to want to be excellent. So you, you tell the story of going to, uh, to America to not be in your mother's shadow, but then you did follow in her footsteps in, in becoming an anthropologist. Did you ever have uh, doubts about that, or was there always kind of an anthropological bug inside you wanting to...? Well, I ended up in anthropology unexpectedly, right? So because you have these liberal arts degrees, there is an expectation that you have to do a lot of stuff, right? So your first and second year, you're doing many things like maths, language, computing. I was doing a lot of stuff. And my dean said, it would be good to do something that feels a bit more comfortable. And I went, oh, well, then I'll pick anthropology, right? And I got to my first anthropology class and it was the only thing that felt familiar. And in fact, there was something about being in America in the 80s that was very homesick because we're talking really before a functional internet, so I couldn't talk to people back here and phone calls were ridiculous. You made them maybe once a quarter to tell everyone you weren't dead yet. (laughs) We relied on kind of aerograms in the post. And it was a very long way from home. I mean, I was in Philadelphia, so it was winter and it snowed and I didn't know anyone and it was just all very was very strange. I mean, we'd grown up with American TV, but people didn't sound like that where I was and it didn't look like that. So yeah, there was this moment of overwhelming homesickness and anthropology was the one thing that felt familiar and comfortable. And so I certainly lent on it and it turned out I was good at it. Um, But I've ended up doing very different things with it than my mum did. So... Did Stanford feel more familiar than Australia? I mean, the Californian climate and... uh few gum trees around. (laughs) 
it certainly smelt like home and that took a while to work out. I kept having these vivid dreams about Australia when I first went to Stanford and it took me a while to work out. There was a massive great grum tree growing outside my window. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this totally sensory experience, right? Um, Stanford was different again, right? Um, the East Coast had been um, a radical departure from Australia and California looked more like Australia, but it was still culturally very different. Mm. Um, it was both a, another place that kind of encouraged this radical um, backing of yourself. Um, so I think that kind of – someone asked me recently what I thought the difference between America and Australia was, and I said for me it had come down to two expressions. The American who'd say, oh, I'm going to back myself, and an Australian who'd say, I'll chance my arm. Mm. And while the, the idiomatically they point to the same things, they suggest completely different ideas about culture. And so Stanford was, again, another one of those places that was um, – an intellectual centre. It was full of really smart people. They were incredibly driven and the expectation was you would be too. But the expectation was also that you knew how to talk about yourself as fitting in there. Mm. And I was still doing the Australian thing of kind of going, oh, you know, legend of my own lunchtime. No, I don't, you know, just a you know, girl from the bush. And I was still kind of constantly downplaying myself. And it took me a while to realise that my peers thought that that meant I had no confidence in myself and that I might actually not be that bright. And it was an interesting cultural moment of realising that the way I knew how to talk about myself as an Australian was actually doing me a disservice there. And it was weird to have to learn to code switch between those things and to still maintain what I like about that Australian sort of humility and context setting, but against the backdrop of if you didn't do it properly, people thought you weren't serious. So... I think for many people, the stereotype of anthropology would be uh, a discipline where people go off to a uh, remote community where the uh, citizens have had little con contact with uh, the rest of the world, uh, live there for three years and produce a book which explains how this community is so unique and different that uh, no one could possibly understand them unless they lived there for a couple of, a couple of years. And yet you go on this very unusual path of, of working for Intel. So how did you... Uh, what did you bring to, to Intel as an anthropologist that they uh, they needed? Yeah, and you kind of have to back it up a second there too, right? So my doctoral work was unusual by anthropological standards too. So I did my PhD and my area of studies at that point was Native American history. And so I actually ended up working on um, the history of a boarding school that had been in the United States between about 1879 and 1918. So it was the kind of flagship of the assimilation era in the US. So, you know, the period of time that's the beginning of that era for us was for them, frontiers already closed. The school was part of the first wave of really aggressively pulling Native Americans into citizenship through what we would think of as being quite violent means now. And this school was the kind of first of those. So think kind of the Cootamundra school but mm. much more aggressively positioned than that without a missionary impulse and about 10,000 native kids went through that school over its 40 years in existence and so I'd written a history of that school based both on the archival records and on tracking down people who were still alive that had been there so I'd interviewed a bunch of old Native Americans who'd been at that school at the turn of the last century I'd interviewed their descendants I'd spent a bunch of time in the archival records and I had written you know a kind of I attempted to write a nuanced account of that and I'd built a database around it because I had access to the, the archival records. And so I was a kind of classically trained Native American ethno-historian. So like even more obscure than an anthropologist. It was like an even, <laughs> an even narrower band of stuff I was doing. And I was, you know, teaching at Stanford at that point, which was unusual when I did it. So Stanford never hired their own. I'm one of only, I think, two people in the history of that department who ever got jobs on the faculty. Um, and so I was there, you know, diligently doing the things you do to be a professor, teaching, and I loved it. I really liked having a classroom. I liked all of that stuff. I liked the work I was doing. It was great. And 
I thought that's what I was going to be. And I ended up at Intel in a very roundabout way. Um, <laughs> so I met a man in a bar, which is a terrible story to tell about myself, but I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto. The bar was called Pearls. It's gone now. It was on Ramona Street <laughs> in 1998, in March of 98, so 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now. And he asked me what I did. I said I was an anthropologist. He said, what's that? I said I studied people for a living. He said, why? <laughs> Should have guessed he was an engineer. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I told him because they were interesting. He just sort of said, well, what do you do with that? I said I was a professor. He said, couldn't you do more? And I thought, yes, I could stop talking to you because you're weird. And I kind of left it at that, right? And he tracked me down the next day. And this is odd because I hadn't given him my phone number. We're talking 98, so before LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, Google, before any mm. digital mechanism by which you could have found me. And he just called every anthropology department in the Bay Area and asked if they had a red-headed Australian. <laughs> and Stanford went, oh, yeah, Jennifer even gave him my home phone number. So I ended up at Intel because of men in bars and bad privacy practices, which is a <laughs> terrible way to have a career, right? But I was really lucky. Uh, you know, they came... They came calling and I just couldn't even understand what the proposition was, right? I couldn't understand mm. what the job was. It didn't resemble anything I knew. There was no job description. There was no multiple page set of things. There were just these guys going on about how you own your own career, we're building the future. And I just didn't get it. And it took them six months for them to convince me. And ultimately what did it was my mother, right, who is, as you rightly say, an extraordinary woman in her own right, had raised my brother and I with this very clear sense that you had a moral obligation to make the world a better place and that that was the way she got us through our time in Central Australia, right, was that it didn't have to be like this. Just because that's how it was didn't mean that's how it had to be and that if you didn't like the world you found yourself in, you had to change it. But you shouldn't be changing it for yourself, you should be changing it for others. And that notion of, I think, we probably call it service these days, but for her, it was the fact that you had a moral obligation to make the world a better place through whatever your action was, whether that was your intellectual work, how you spent your time, how you spent your energy, your passion, all of those things ought to be in service of the world being better and different. And I thought being a professor was the way to do that, right? And I was committed to that. And I couldn't see how Intel was that. And then I had the closest good non-religious girls like me ever come to epiphanies where I woke up one morning underneath that big gum tree and thought to myself wait I'm being given this opportunity right to take what I know how to do and put it somewhere completely different and put it in the service of something different and if indeed it, it was the case that Intel and companies like them were building the future I thought people like me should be in that conversation right that maybe it shouldn't just be engineers solving engineering problems maybe you needed to think about human beings and I had all the hubris the same hubris that got me out of Australia I think is what got me into Intel I was young enough and silly enough to think I could actually change the place and so I said yes it is extraordinary to uh, give up a tenure-track job at an Ivy League institution. And I understand your, your boss at Intel gave you a brief which included that you would address uh, all women and the rest of the world. That is uh, correct. Given that they were uh, <laughs> they, they understood themselves to be too America-centric. Um, so what did you work on? What did you do with them? Uh, so when I first got there, my job really was to help them with, as my boss had said, two jobs, women and rest of world. Um, and I do remember asking her what world was, such that there was a rest of world. And she did say to me, that was America. And she was very excited because I came from the rest of the world. I was like, oh, dear. 
<laughs> Good to have a very big job here. Part of my job was simply in the early days, it was educational. It was, you know, how do you take a large American tech company who is scaling to the planet and help them think about the fact that the rest of the planet wasn't like them and more to the point didn't want to be like them. Mm. That it wasn't that the rest of the world was just waiting to wake up one day and be America. That there were, in fact strong threads of culture and regulation and society, all of which mattered. Much of my early job was just to remind people that human beings bought technology and that not all human beings were the same and not all usages were the same. So, I mean, it was a incredibly fundamental job at one level. And it, it, at other levels, you kind of think back and go, really, did people need to be reminded of that? But the reality was they did. So for Intel, it's kind of... Um, single biggest contribution, it's a 50-year-old company, right, has always been this notion of Moore's Law, so named after one of the founders, Gordon Moore. And the idea in Moore's Law was that microprocessors, so the building blocks of any computer, smartphone or anything else, that microprocessors would halve in size, double in density every 18 months to two years. And what density in that means is double in computational power, so they'd get smaller and more powerful on a knowable cadence. And what that meant was that if you were anyone else in the ecosystem, so software companies, manufacturing companies, you could guarantee that the technology would get more and more powerful, and so you could do more and more things with it. And that cadence has been true since, well, 1965, when Gordon first spelt it out until today, is that computation does generation on generation, have some decrease in size and some increase in some version of basically computational brute force. And so what that lets you do is ever so much more with a computer now than you could do mm. 20 years ago, right? Most of us are likely to be listening to this podcast on a smartphone. Those didn't exist 10 years ago. You're producing it using some kind of editing suite on a desktop that didn't exist 10 years ago with the computational power that 20 years ago would have been reserved for high particle physicists and other people, right? So... There's something about that kind of increase in computation that has made these radical differences. But for Intel 20 years ago, and most tech companies 20 years ago, they could see how the technology would change, but they couldn't work out what the right direction was. And mm. they just kept thinking that really what people wanted was more Excel spreadsheets and more, more to the point, quicken books because that's what everyone was using computers for 20 years ago was bookkeeping. <laughs> and so there was this notion of if we knew what people wanted, would we build computers differently? And so that was my job, was to help work out what people wanted and try and work out, did that mean we should build computers differently? Did you also bring more of the anthropological, anthropological toolkit to it? Uh, oh, absolutely. More sort of sit-down conversations with users? Oh, yes. So we, at that point, well, at that point we didn't talk to users terribly often 20 years ago because the assumption was that users were just like people in the building, which was a problem because the people in the building were mostly engineers. <laughs> and predominantly at that point male, and mostly from America. Um, and so even if you'd asked each other, you were only getting a tiny slice of the puzzle. Mm. I think in some ways the thing I actually brought even more than the toolkit was the point of view. So, you know, the thing about anthropology and most of the social sciences is that we believe that humans are an important part of the puzzle. Even economists think that. Um, and so there had to be this bit about constantly putting humans back into the conversation. So you'd be like, it's oh, really good you've built that. It's what I used to say about Moore's Law. Okay, so it halves in size and doubles in density every 18 months. What's anyone doing with it? And they mm. went, that's not important. I'm like, that's hugely important. <laughs> and so for me, step one was just put people into the conversation, like any people. And the second step was, you know, how did you then start to tell stories about those people? So Intel and other tech companies had a lot of quantitative data. So they'd say 60% of people do blah. And my job was to remind them that those people actually had faces and names and individual stories and you might need to tell those. And so we used to 
joke, my colleagues and I, that we were haunting the building with people. So we'd put their faces up on walls and put their sentences on their faces and we'd put them in PowerPoint presentations and we'd plaster video of them all over the campus. And really it was about reminding people that they weren't building technology in the abstract, they were building it in the particular. Do you see ways in which Intel changed as a result of your work there? Or is it is it more about the way in which the workplace of Intel sh shifted? Is, is it? I'd like to say both. On my best days, I'd like to say I made a difference. I'm a hard grader, so I'd probably give myself a B minus, <laughs> but better than nothing. Uh, listen, I think the way I'd know we changed the company, me and the people that were like me, is that the company talks differently than it used to. So it doesn't mm. just talk about Moore's Law anymore. It talks about people. The way I most recently realized that's how I was back um, for the 50th birthday of the company. And we have our massive corporate headquarters in Silicon Valley, like everyone else, big blue building, big Intel sign outside the building. And next to the massive big Intel sign, there is now an equally big sign that just says experience. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, look, <laughs> we, changed the, we changed the way the company thought about what it did. Mm. And ultimately, that's as important as any piece of technology is if you can change the way an institution thinks about itself and about its value, then you've made a difference of some description. So 18 months ago, uh, Ryan Schmidt uh, lured you back to the uh, the Australian National University. Oh, mostly it was Eleanor Huntington, not Brian. Okay, very good. Um, so uh, I, I don't know why I would have gotten the uh, the notion that Brian was claiming credit for that. Because uh, <laughs> he claims credit for it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> He's clearly very, very, very proud of you. Right? And uh, good to know the uh, credit goes to Eleanor. Um, t tell me uh, what the Institute does. So... It's interesting, right? Brian, much like Intel many, many years ago, suffered from the, he made me an offer and I turned him down um, because I didn't want a job. I, you know, part of the notion of being driven by the idea you should make the world a better place is jobs are less interesting, missions are more interesting. And so it wasn't until he and Eleanor found a mission for me, not a job, that they actually convinced me I should come home. And part of the finding me a mission was creating space for me inside a university, as you can imagine, Whilst I might have held a tenure-track job 20 years ago, I haven't exactly had a traditional academic career in between, and nor did I want one. I haven't missed it. I've had both a charmed and incredibly busy existence, and it's been amazing. So, I mean, I wasn't looking for an academic job. And frankly, there's lots of things about me that don't fit well inside a university context <laughs> to this day. I don't do well with protracted timescales, just as a starting point. Um, so when... Brian and Dean Huntington were thinking about what the kind of right way to fit me into the institution was. There were a couple of things that were going on at the Australian National University that were relevant, right? Part was there'd been a strategic replan, so to take ANU back closer to its founding mission. So back when Nugget Coombs and Chifley were imagining the university, the idea was to build capacity and competency for Australia and solve hard problems and to wean ourselves off a dependence on Oxbridge. Mm. which is an interesting idea, right? In some ways, it's kind of a, a radical challenge for a university, build our own intellectuals. And, you know, when Nugget and Chifley sort of spelled out the university, they really did spell it out with this notion of what are the big problem domains and how do we go about solving them? And I think when Brian became vice chancellor, it was about how do we recommit to that original mission, build capacity for the nation and solve hard problems. And as part of that, I think there was an idea that you needed to bring some different kinds of thinking into the university, uh, in industry I'm known as a disruptive thinker I'm not sure that's how the university would like to think of it but to bring some people who had uh, other kinds of backgrounds in and see if we could help drive a little bit of kind of you know disruption inside the university 
And so a couple of things happened. They created these positions called entrepreneurial fellows, and I'm the first one to occupy one of those. Mark Kendall came after me. There's a few more of them kind of in sequence, uh, Lachlan Blackhall too. So entrepreneurial fellows designed to be these kind of people who haven't had traditional academic careers but obviously have a scholarly Mm. interest and a scholarly kind of brain and who bring different pieces of the puzzle to bear. And then the second thing was to create these innovation institutes which were designed to be I think of them as incubators, but basically designed to be a space where you could experiment with new forms of knowledge, experiment with new kinds of uh, relationships and new stakeholder management, and then experiment with new ways of transmitting that knowledge. Mm. And so I have the first one of those two. So my institute was the first one, and then um, the Cybersecurity Institute, which Leslie Seaback now runs, which came online quite recently, and then Mark Kendall's one, which is really about biomedical technology and the Space Institute. So there's been a series of them kind of mooted along the way. And mine was the first, and so that's always interesting when you get to be the first one. It means you get to see just how far everyone is willing to move with you. (laughs) Or, you know, as Brian says, you engage in a bit of creative destruction. So the Institute has a couple of kind of purposes. Uh, One of them is to, you know, how do you create new knowledge? How do you find new ways of managing and creating relationships and then new ways of transmitting knowledge. And for us, we're prosecuting a deceptively simple but also dementedly ambitious agenda. Um, So the last couple of years for me in Intel, one of the things that became really clear to me was that artificial intelligence was arriving and it was going to scale. And the interesting thing about that was that that didn't mean that all computers were becoming smart. It meant that a whole bunch of other things were going on instead. And for me, what became much more interesting is what happened when artificial intelligence stopped being on computers and started to be inside things. So think cars and drones and robots and Mm. lifts and buildings, or what the World Economic Forum calls cyber-physical systems. But basically imagine artificial intelligence, the idea of computing that doesn't require programming. That's okay if it's sitting inside a computer. It's much more interesting when it's in objects that are doing stuff in the world. And I was really interested in that move and also really interested in the fact that we didn't have any language for talking about that and more importantly we didn't really have anyone who'd know how to manage it and all I kept thinking about was all those previous waves of industrialization so when we first had steam engines that ultimately became trains and railways and then you know electricity that electrified things and made lights but then also made you know the grid and computers that ultimately well made computers computerized everything but each one of those moves we ended up having to create a new um, set of people engineers Mm. electrical engineers computer scientists each one of those waves of technology created not just different jobs but different practitioners and actually required experts to manage the systems right so that they would go to scale safely for humans and I look at this most recent one and I thought to myself, gosh, there's nothing there to do that, right? We don't yet have the emerging discipline that will manage mm, those mm. systems to scale. And so I said to the vice chancellor and my dean, I think that's the thing I want to do. Like, I think I want to build the next branch of engineering or the next applied science. And Brian went, yeah, okay. I had to call him back two days later and go, you know what I've said to you, right? And he's like, well, yeah, it sounds ambitious. <laughs> You'll probably be really busy, but, you know, you've got as good a chance of getting it done as anyone. And I went, I will take that as a yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Institute, that's what it's doing. We're going to build the next branch of engineering or build the next applied science. And I know that sounds crazy. I mean, I know every time I say it out loud, I sound like I'm a lunatic. But I know it has to happen. I know it's not enough to just say people who do computer science should learn ethics. This is a bigger puzzle than that, and it requires a radically new way of thinking. So the Institute's about building a new 
body of knowledge, finding a bunch of people who care about it and finding ways to transmit it that extend beyond just building more degree programs. So there's 12 of us now in the Institute, well, on a, you know, a bit of a hiring ramp by ANU standards, a uh, range of different backgrounds. So I have people who have expertise in computer science and engineering and systems engineering, but also people who have backgrounds in anthropology and human geography and nuclear physics and environmental studies and biomedical and public policy and the law. And people who've spent time in government and think tanks and consulting and in the university sector and people who know how to do improv theatre and juggle and student activism. Because I kind of figured if you're building something new, you need a bit of everything and we won't know what it is till we're done. So radical group of kind of very different people, no straight through career line, which is really interesting. Uh, we're busily building relationships all over the world and... We're working out how to transmit that knowledge in new and different ways, though the first piece, gosh, I can't believe I managed to make this happen, we're going to accept our first cohort of students in February. So we have applications open now, so depending on when your podcast goes to air, if you go to 3ainstitute.org, you can find out all the details about us. We're going to take 10 students next year, fully funded. The idea being, I didn't want to wait for a curriculum to be perfect, I wanted to build it with people in real time, because I think we can't wait. So I love the uh, combination of nuclear physicists and jugglers. Mm -hmm. uh, t tell me, though, uh, do you take the view that uh, artificial intelligence is different from other fields of technology uh, in that normally we allow the ethical conversation to lag behind a little, as, as we did with uh, uh, automobiles, for example, but there is a view that where you've got... Um, machines that are programming themselves that you might actually need the ethical conversation to get ahead of the technology because of this potential for the te a sudden technological surge, the, the so-called singularity? Yeah, listen, I think that's a really good question and I've been thinking about it a lot recently. My suspicion is we start talking about ethics when we realise we no longer have law to take care of the situation. And I think one of the mistakes we're making here is that I think we've gone to talking about ethics too quickly. I actually think there are a bunch of regulations and laws we could be imposing on this technology that we've chosen not to. So whether it's about saying, sitting inside Australia, we already have the Commonwealth Ombudsman and the Administrative Affairs Tribunal who are perfectly capable of asking questions about process, which would let us to talk about code and data. We have a set of conversations that are already ongoing and regulations that exist around privacy, around commercial activity. So in fact, we have a whole lot of regulation that we could use to contain and conscribe some of this. I think there are certainly open questions about certain pieces of this technical technology and technical systems and about how we want to be as a society with those, though I think those expand beyond the ambit of AI to much broader claims about how we collect data and what purposes we put it to. Uh, and it's certainly the case looking globally that it is a patchwork of regulatory frameworks. I mean, the EU is in a very different place than America, for instance, in terms of how to think about regulating this stuff. And I don't think that AI is the same as automobiles. Um, and I think one of the problems is we keep using it as though it were singular. I mean, this is kind of interesting when we talk about artificial intelligence like it were a thing. And, of course, it's a constellation of things. Mm. Um, you know, both sitting under underneath AI, there's like, well, five independent pieces of technology that have to come together, data, algorithms, machine learning, sensing, and, well, basically logic. So you've got all of those pieces. And it's also the case at the moment that AIs, and I hate making it plural, but I don't know how else to think about it, are being built in different places, right? And it's not, it's not like science fiction told us. 
So, you know, it's not like there's a single Cyberdyne corporation waiting to go live and, yes. you know, Skynet will appear and then everything will be connected. Um, and it's not like all the other science fiction told us. If anything, it's closer to Blade Runner, where it's all independently commercially owned by different people, or Douglas Adams, cybernetics company. Um, my suspicion is we haven't done a good job of separating out what science fiction told us the world would be and what the reality of it and the way it is unfolding. Now, all of that said, do I think it needs more regulation and more discussion? Oh, absolutely. But I think there are conversations we don't quite know how to have about things like, do we want to import artificial intelligences from somewhere else? Because we're used to importing things in Australia. We've done it for a long time. We bring everything from somewhere else or most things from somewhere else. But we all that technology, I would have thought it's imported. Uh, stump jump plows were made here. We built Wi-Fi here before we sent it everywhere else. Aeroguard. I can go down a whole long list of things that were invented in Australia before we sent them somewhere else to bring them back again. Absolutely. But, you know, the black box flight recorder is only one of uh, hundreds of pieces Absolutely. on a modern jet. Uh, Absolutely. The rest of which are imported when we, uh, yep. when we get, get a modern jet. But, you know, that jet is not deciding the level of things that an algorithm might. Sure. So one of the questions then becomes, how would you scrutinise those objects? So, you know, how do you unpack what's sitting inside of an algorithm or what set of... So an algorithm, again, I know that sounds complicated. It isn't. An algorithm is just the automating of a set of tasks. So I usually say if you've used a washing machine, you've encountered an algorithm. If you know in a washing machine there is a delicate cycle, the delicate cycle merely says cold water, low spin, less rinse, different than cotton. Because <laughs> someone decided that delicates required a different kind of basically automation of practice. So rather than having to select all the pieces, the machine does it for you. That's all algorithms are, right? There are how you string together a series of tasks and give it a, a label. The challenge, of course, becomes what do you decide the tasks are, in what order and to what end. And lurking inside of that are often a series of judgments uh, in, in two senses, right? Judgments because, well, we, we know from best practices that less spin and cold water are good for delicates, but also judgments about in what order, to what extent. And those judgments often have values sitting underneath of them and those values are frequently mm. cultural. And so unpacking those pieces becomes quite tricky and regulating them and scrutinising them doubly so. Hence the reason that you've got the European Union now saying things like, we want to be able to scrutinise how algorithms function. So sitting inside the most recent legislation that the EU has passed around um, data protection, is a provision that a citizen should be able to say to a company, why did your algorithm decide this about me? So what's called the right to explanation. And that's actually an interesting right to put forward, right? Mm. Is that not all algorithms know how to explain themselves and not all companies would wish to explain why their algorithm did what it did. But starting to think about what will we as citizens, not just consumers, start to expect of the world around us is for mm. me where the conversation should be being had. It's not about... Um, ethics good or bad it's about what is the kind of culture we want to have what is the society we want to have and what are the regulations we are going to need to impose to make that happen i mean australia's always had a complicated relationship to its border you know whether that's about who we want to have passed through it today whether it was about what literature we thought was appropriate you know 25 years ago whether it's about what bio security objects we let pass through what medical objects we let into the country we've always regulated what flowed here and what didn't and imagining that we should similarly scrutinize computational objects is not a stretch in a legislative way it may be a stretch in terms of imagination but you know for a country that cut its teeth on the perils of 
rabbits and cane toads and camels, there's an argument that says we ought to know better than almost anyone else about what happens when you don't take a mm. thoughtful approach to what comes into your country. And how has this work changed how you yourself use technology? Do you have uh, tips or tricks on uh, managing email, uh, dealing with social media that would be useful to those of us with far less professional expertise than you? Um, so there's things I'm really sloppy about and things I'm better about. Um, listen, if I knew the answer to email, I'd tell you, and I don't. Best practices I know on email are turning off the notification on your desktop so that it doesn't tell you every time you have email because all the data suggests we are profoundly interrupt-driven and every time you're interrupted, nothing good can come of it. So best practice I know from all my time in Silicon Valley was turn off whatever your inbox's mechanism is for notifying you that you have email, turn it off. It's the only way I know to get out from underneath the tyranny of being interrupted. I have colleagues who say the answer is answer nothing and it will just stop. I have no reason to believe that's true. <laughs> so inbox, that's the only one I know. Um, in terms of everything else, I never went on to Facebook uh, for any number of reasons. I just decided that wasn't where I wanted to spend my time and I have been not on Facebook ever since. I am on Twitter and I use that as a mechanism of kind of both. I find it an interesting place to gather data and an interesting place to just sort of let people know what I'm up to. Mm. But I'm very selective about how I choose to engage with it. I mostly don't give my location away. I'm pretty clear about what I share about my personal life on there and I maintain it as a professional facing thing. I would like to say I'm better about where the technology sits in my home and in my life. I'm not. Um, I tend to try and make spaces where those things don't work for me. That tends to mean I really like international plane flights and swimming pools. Until they managed to get Wi-Fi on those international plane flights, at which point you're done. Uh, it's been really interesting about how that's been resisted and by whom, it turns out. Um, combination oh, yeah. of forces, yeah, so partly it turns out to be professional travellers don't want Wi-Fi on aeroplanes for the same reasons I just outlined, because mm. it's the only place you can get 16 hours uninterrupted thinking. And airlines are concerned about what happens when people uh, stream their own content and about whether they'll have to police certain kinds of content in aeroplanes. Oh, well, maybe we'll hold off a little longer. I do uh, treasure that uh, those blocks of time to be able to work in an interrupted way, as you say, to have this moment of going to inbox zero before I uh, do a send-receive at the other end and uh, it fills back up again. Wow, you just said inbox zero. You're a horrible person. <laughs> I remember the last time I had inbox zero. Why does inbox zero make me a horrible person? Oh, because it's a form of humble bragging. Ah, OK. Because <laughs> yes, yes. you think you get to inbox zero and I don't love you for that. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we aspire to it? I mean, you, you spent a lot of time at Intel. Did, uh, did, did the more productive people there actually empty their inboxes or is yeah. this just a, just a myth? No, they really didn't. <laughs> Listen, I think everyone develops different mechanisms, which would be true, right? Because we've always had different mechanisms mm. for how we handle information. I mean, whether you were a highlight everything with a pen in your book or write it down next to it or take notes in lectures of everything that was said or just the stuff that triggered for you or whether you put all your bills in one place and pay them when they come in or pay them once a month. Right. There is an enormous amount of variation in how humans handle information and how they manage those things. And I think the notion of there being a single way of handling it, unlikely. Um, I will tell you some things we do know from an enormous amount of studies of these things, though, is that if you have kids and you worry about your kids' relationship to technology, chances are they're learning many of their bad habits from you. So there is very strong data coming out of the Pew uh, in America who track 
mm. internet usage in American families, that most kids, when asked, say they wish their parents didn't spend as much time on devices and that many of the habits they learn about using their devices they learn from their parents. And I think there's an interesting thing in there for parents as we worry about what our kids are doing, thinking about what we're doing as being part of that ecosystem is a an interesting challenge. Yes. Uh, and your insight that uh, it, there are there is no single optimal way of uh, of dealing with technology is both a surely right and b uh, exactly what I expect from an anthropolog a professional anthropologist. Um, so to to wrap up, Genevieve, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Mm, what advice would I give to my teenage self? Probably two pieces: be less worried that you don't fit in, and be okay with that. And then I think, move even faster, go even further. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? That I'd get my inbox to zero. (laughs) When are you most happy? Almost every day. Really? You're one of these 10 out of 10 happiness people? No, no, but I'm lucky enough to have a job that matters with a task that matters with an end goal that seems impossible and those things mm. all make me happy. No, I mean, there are days when pretty much everyone else, I want to kill almost everyone else around me. Also, all the email in my inbox. Also, why isn't there coffee? Also, oh my God, how is this my life? You know, all the usual. Also, really, none of these clothes make me happy and why are you people moving so slowly? I mean, I'm sure I have all the same, you know, collection of intense irritations about myself and everyone else. Um, And, you know, I wish I could sleep more. I remember to brush my teeth more often. I should exercise more. I should eat less. I mean, you know, please, I'm deeply human. But I also believe in work that matters and I'm lucky enough to be doing work that matters. So there is a, a run of pleasure that I get every day because I have a job that I think will make a difference. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, I read books. I swim. Fiction, non-fiction? I read everything. Mum used to joke that you put a cereal box in front of me and I'd read that too. (laughs) Do you finish books or do you often uh, put them down partway through? Heresy. No, you have to finish everything, which makes it quite difficult because I read a lot of things. You know the scarcity is your time rather than your money, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, but I also know that the thing I'll, you know, one of the things I like about myself and the world that I live in is that I get to continue to find new things to think about and new ideas. And that's, a, at, a me- at a biomechanical sense, neuroplasticity, hugely important. Mm, so continuing mm. to feed the beast is great. But for me, curiosity is a thing I treasure in myself and maintaining an ability to continue to be curious and not be done yet is really important. So books help. Any great things you've read this year that you'd recommend to our listener? Oh, gosh, I've read all kinds of great things this year. I'm reading an excellent book on traffic congestion in London in the 1800s at the moment. Um, but that's only great because I would find that sort of thing interesting. Oh, what have I read that I really liked recently? There were two books. There's a book called The Age of Wonder by an English historian. I want to say Richard Ford, but that may not be right. Um, that's all about the period between um, Cook's first voyage and Darwin and about kind of changing forms of intellectual life and I think that one's lovely and then two other books one by um, Ellen Broad that's just come out about uh, humanness and AI-ness out of Melbourne University Press and then one by Maya Haviland who's here at the ANU on stuff around co-design and creativity and then I just picked up a new piece of science fiction called Wraith can't think who the authors are but it comes out of one of the Aboriginal presses in WA so that's on my bookshelf too 
Yes, it is striking to me the way in which you meld together uh, history and futurism in your, your your boy lectures have an extraordinary amount of, of history for someone who is looking to how technology could shape the future. Well, I don't think history gives us the answers, but I think it helps you ask better questions. Yes. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in addition to books, uh, television. <laughs> I like 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 I like television, like TV with a good female lead. I just like TV. So you can ask all me. Netflix now. Um, no, no, because you know, back in the land of iView, so like the ABC, yeah. yay! Also Stan, also SBS, also Netflix, also Amazon Prime. Excellent. And a few favorite series. Uh, recently, listen. I thought Altered Carbon was brilliant. Um, so science fiction. It's a little bit graphic and a little bit, you know naked and dead bodies but the conceit in it was incredibly smart it's one of the first times i've seen someone take your notion of the singularity and just assume if the singularity was true what would the world look like Mm. so the notion of the singularity be if you could upload your consciousness and the body no longer matters what does the world look like and it's it's a really interesting playing out of that notion because suddenly you have a group of people who refuse to download their consciousness again so they're one and done people you have a bunch of people who are paying to constantly re-upload their consciousness and it was just the conceit there of what might a world look like it was one of the smartest pieces of science fiction i've seen in just ages it was really good um huge fan of 12 monkeys sadly it's it's finished now but another piece of science fiction playing with time which i particularly liked i thought killing eve was great two really smart female leads was excellent um and what else was i watching recently um oh of course because i'm i'm home again i finally watched secret city which made me laugh <laughs> I was like, oh, look, Canberra. Oh, and the code too, which I then probably sent to all my American mates as this is where I'm living. And they all wrote back and went, <laughs> are there some things we need to discuss? I'm like, it's just not that. No. <laughs> so now a bit of everything. And finally, Genevieve, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, my mother, clearly. So Diane Bell would be the answer to that. And then because of the vintage I am, I'm lucky enough to have been also raised by a bunch of Aboriginal leaders who I couldn't not want to say that about too right so you know hmm. gary foley marcia langton gary williams tom trevorrow naparula nelson there's a whole bunch of people who shaped who i am you had this lovely line about your uh, your mother when she said she uh, you said of her that uh, her view was that uh if you could see a better world you were morally obligated to make it you couldn't sit on the sidelines you couldn't carp you couldn't win you couldn't complain best guideline ever <laughs> genevieve bell Thank you for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. It's going to be my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.